without data and without actual science behind it, it's just intellectual masturbation. It's useless, right? And that's something people, they don't like to hear, but it's true. Like cold showers don't work. I mean, they had an effect, but that effect without an ulterior cause and without knowing what you're trying to do, how you're stimulating your nervous system, doesn't, it's not going to turn you into Superman. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talk to Leon Castillo. Leon is an architect who couldn't find a job and was in a dark place in his life. He was invited to work at a VC company and he knew he needed to change his life. He's now a walking encyclopedia on increasing your performance by mastering yourself. In this episode, you'll get a masterclass in how to improve your cognitive performance. And we talk about how you can find and use leverage in your life and how you can transcend your own self-image. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey Leon, nice that you're here in the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your backstory? I was born in a hot summer <laughs> day. I was I was an, an architect. I graduated in 2000. 13 from the Architecture School of Madrid. Then since I didn't really like what I had studied, I went into finance. So I started consulting and then I rapidly moved to private equity. I had a chance to participate in the creation of a venture capital fund also in Madrid. And I eventually became an entrepreneur, which is what I'm doing now. Tell us a little bit about your uh, VC history. What did you do? So the VC history is basically that I was approached by a bunch of people that had a lot of money, but little time. And they ended up helping the operational management of a pool of funds that they created. And I said, of course, yes, because you always have to say yes to everything that comes your way. And over time, I stayed because we eventually built up the fund in a way that it was everything was fully automatized. That was the first years of Watson as a viable alternative, the IBM Watson, which is the technology behind artificial intelligence within IBM. So we used that, we leveraged that, and then we were basically able to manage a lot of investment opportunities per week. And we ended up being very active in the first years of the fund. That's 2015, 2014, 2015, we're all around the news. We're a seed fund, right? So in Spain at that time, not many people had access to capital for startups. Not many people were doing seed capital, which is the one that carries most risk. And it was pretty, pretty fun, pretty cool. I learned a lot. Remember that I was an architect, so I was not really accustomed to the startup world. How did you meet the founders of the VZ firm? Well, that's a very cool story. So it was through a friend. I wouldn't say a friend, but you know, the type of person that you know who he is, you know who, he, who you are, you meet up in different people's parties, you hit it up talking about whatever, but you haven't really met this guy outside of parties, right? I had met him intensely during that summer in a few parties, and we always hit it up talking about startups. And then at some point, he just called me and said, dude, I was approached by this guy. Do you want to help us out? And I said, yes. And that's how I started. And we're the four of us. So like four junior people and about eight to 10 senior people. And each junior people had a task. So one had a task of overseeing the portfolio. The other guy had to do relationship with other VC funds. I was in charge of dealing with data management. And then we also had one of partnership for our startup. So we basically, these four people, we organized pretty much everything. So the guys pulling the capital didn't have to be on their day-to-day management. And then we eventually became partners, right? So we invested, we're given the opportunity to invest and we stayed there. And that's something I've been doing, I'd say part-time for about 
five years. Did you ask why they thought of you and not somebody else as a junior? Because I was probably recommended by Alberto. I did proof of work, right? All the operational management, all the how to deal with the inflow of deals. So they send a lot of stuff their way. You need to be able to categorize what's good, what's not good, what are the key criteria, how to organize a proper deal flow. So basically sort out the signal from the noise and make, make it so in a repeatable manner. Were you also one of the first people that saw pitches coming in and you were like, yes, this one, no, that one, etc.? That was me, yeah. And what were the criteria you looked at? Well, that has changed a lot, but obviously there's more technical criteria and more open market criteria. So by the open market one, we were looking for all sorts of startups that had at least some sort of proof of concept and ideally were post revenue under 1 million in valuation. That's in 2014-2015. And we were looking for teams that were ideally more than one but less than three who had complementary profiles, so one technical guy, one business development guy, and yeah, or two, one, like meaning two developments and one technical, or the other way around. We had all sorts of criteria. It was always better if they didn't pay themselves because that would imply full skin in the game, which is something that we're looking. We had, ideally, they had obviously deals or fruitful conversation with all the VCs, right? Because the VC, in no way, it's a little bit like a game of hot potato. You need to be able that somebody else is going to carry the risk moving forward, especially if you're a seed stage. So it's really a good indicator of the health of your business plan. If you have approached later stage firms, so let's say, basically the VC world, somebody has an idea and the goal is ideally to make it public, right? To bring it to the public markets. And along the way, there are several milestones that you need to fulfill in terms of the business itself and of the financing you need. So on the business itself is the first thing you need to really have is a proof of concept or what others call product market fit, which is something that is quite hard. That means that you actually have an idea that people are willing to pay for. That's super important. And then you have milestones in terms of how much are growing month on month, how well are you managing or scaling your business, uh, how was your position within the industry. And the VC world is basically subdivided in those funds, seed stage funds that invest just with an idea or a PowerPoint. So somebody comes to see you, he tells you his amazing idea, the team, and what is he trying to achieve. And you need to believe that, right? There's, there are no metrics. They raise seed A, seed B, and those seeds are normally later stage funds. So we normally say that in early stage, you're looking for ideally one of the funds needs to return all the capital of the fund. So you're looking for more than a 10x on your investment and later stage funds are looking for a 2x or 3x, right? So it really depends on the type of risk you want to get. Remember that at that time, there was not an ecosystem that it was as mature as it is now. So there were a few funds and most of them are later stage. So if a guy had gone to a later stage fund, he got a positive view, but they had been told that it was just too early for them. That was a good indication for us because it meant that there was some sort of runway for the startup and we could minimize our risk by investing in it, if that makes sense. The VC landscape in Europe is a lot different than in, in the US, especially like six years ago. It's just, uh, you can't even compare, I think. And uh, I had a little bit of uh, experience with a VC firm as well in my previous startup. So yeah, they were actually a bigger investor, but they ended up investing like a quarter of a million euros. So like in US terms, that would be like 
seed fund, maybe even pre-seed, definitely not a normal round. And here in Europe, that's already you know, quite a bit of money, at least like five years ago. So yeah, what I'm also interested in is what are like the, the metrics you look at? It's pre-seed, often like pre-revenue. If a business did have revenue, what did you look at? What was important for you to see to make a, an investment decision on? That's really context dependent. And that really depends on the stage of the growth of the company. Maybe you could take us through a deal you did. At a pre-stage, the easier is to triangulate between the experience of the founding team, the total addressable market, the TAM. So who is going to do what? What is the impact that this what can have? What are the, the initial business development things that they have done? Right. So that's basically where we find ourselves at. It's more on people say that we do hunches. I don't think we do hunches, but we look for patterns before numbers and metrics can help us. Again, that is it's very hard to really have a single user case because there's a lot of reflexivity within the VC industry. Reflexivity is that idea that we modified our reality. So imagine if somebody invests a hundred million on a startup, even if there are no fundamentals, even if there is no product market fit, it radically changes what the startup can do. That seems intuitive, but that's something that needs to be taken into account in VC. So for instance, there's a lot of funds that they use this extra capital to boost the startups. For example, the Japanese guys that invested in WeWork, SoftBank. SoftBank, for instance, likes to invest a lot of capital in different startups, and that really provides a lot of power to founding teams that otherwise wouldn't be able to achieve certain things, right? So when you're doing early stage, you need to look at how your own reflexivity is affecting the way that startup is going to progress. For instance, depending on who you introduce them to or what ecosystem do they happen to work with or work in, that changes radically. The success changes. How often do you meet with them? How often do you coach them? See, it's more on the qualitative side of things, not that much on the quantitative side of things. When looking at like founders, what were metrics you looked at? Probably was the first time founder or second or third, but also did he have successful exits or how many failures? What did you look at? Skill in the game. That's the only thing I, I care about. Somebody with a previous exit is not guaranteed that he's going to have success in the second trial. For example, Twitch founder Justin Khan is very open about this. He didn't have as much chance with his second startup, Atrium, that he had with him first. Like a successful exit is really depending on so many external factors that it's very hard to model it, especially on early stage entrepreneurs. But what ends up being a predictor of success is how well the entrepreneur is suited for the task and how all in he is. If he risks everything in a sensible manner, obviously, there's a greater chance that this will work. What's a good sense of skin in the game? No salary on the first year, enough pivots in the first year, enough meetings booked with relevant key partners in the marketplace, that kind of stuff. And probably also, of course, how big his stake still is in the business. Well, yeah, but at, at seed stage, there's not much to lose, right? There's what? There's an idea, a little bit of capital and time. Yeah, unless you have maybe three founders or I don't know. Still time and little capital. Not so much about the hidden costs, is about not edging your bets. Again, this is a pre-seed or seed. There's not much capital around at this point. An entrepreneur will never say that his time was wasted. That's never the case, right? So it's not like there's a huge opportunity cost of the people involved or a huge opportunity cost of the capital involved. It's more that the people involved need to be fully focused, fully energized and ready 
for the turmoil and the roller coaster that entrepreneurship entails, right? And that's that's a little bit how the submassive mythology was born, right? Looking at that, triangulating the best traits, and eventually uh, building a mythology on top of that. Let's say I have an idea. I'm making a prototype. How would I approach a VC? How would I, you know, be visible, get visibility with them? It's just, I mean, that's changing every day, but the core idea is what's the idea? Who's behind the idea? What's the timeline for that idea to produce results? What's unique about your idea? How can you make that idea defensible? And why should I trust you? It's not rocket science because we're not really dealing with, of course, complicated ideas require deeper explanations, but in short, it's just about being absolutely clear on a goal, on the timeline, on the people behind it. I hear from some VC firms that they only take meetings from people they were referred to. That has changed. And there's a lot of good firms that are doing a lot of good work in creating protocols and systems that allow people to be pitched, right? So when you have, for example, there's uh, the NoFX guys in San Francisco, they have developed, I don't remember the name of the platform, but they have like a template that people just fill in. And they have internal systems that spit out whether it's interesting to meet them or not. And that's a huge opportunity equalizer. Uh, You're still working there part-time? We are at the end of the fund at this moment. So we're basically divesting. So all my energy is in Submaster now. Okay, you're divesting. So right now you're selling off all the assets, hopefully making a profit. Making a profit. (laughs) And so when did you decide to start Self-Mastered? That was about a year ago, but Samasur, at the same time that I was in this VC firm, I was in the private equity industry for five years. So again, private equity was my main gig and I was a direct, that was on the private equity real estate fund. So private equity is a broad industry, it's more like a concept than an industry. And I was in the private equity real estate industry as a director and I was managing basic investments in residential development, basically. That was my main stuff. It's interesting because I was on the one side, I was looking at startups, so things that had a lot of risk. And on the other side, I was dealing also with an alternative asset, which is real estate development, but with a totally different risk profile, right? And that was very interesting. That was very formative. Everything that I learned seeing entrepreneurs manage themselves in the face of turmoil, I used it to build my teams in the private equity industry. And over time, I started like tracking myself. I had a lot of dashboards and I, I developed methodology because also, and this, we didn't cover this before, but when I finished my architecture school, I was totally destroyed personally because it was very demanding. Back then it was super demanding. Now they watered it down a bit. The median completion time at that time was not 9.3, 9.5 years. So you get an idea of how hard it was. And when I finished, I said in seven years, and I spent most of my time in China and Brazil, I had developed narcolepsy, which is a condition that you fall asleep whenever it finds you. I even fall asleep and crash my car at some point. So that was nasty. And I also could, just couldn't focus and couldn't really be a normal functional being. So I started like experimenting with myself, started reading a lot of sub, I don't know, evolutionary psychology, the flow bug, the typical. I started on scientific management and then quickly I went to neuroscience, behavioral science. And as I was reading, I was developing my tracking systems on my dashboard. And over time, over time means five years, 5.5 years, as I was progressing in the industry very fast in the private equity industry and also in the venture capital, but venture capital, I was like more on the mentoring coaching side. I ended up building my own methodology for doing what I do. And I could see that people that gone through that methodology, both on the private equity front and on the entrepreneurial front, had results. Like they were able to focus more. They were able to get a lot more done, a lot less time. They had data to track themselves. And at some point, I realized that there was a business behind what I was doing. It was just a matter of translating everything into English. 
creating a platform that allowed me to teach at scale, which is what Submaster is. And that's how I was born. What made you decide, well, so you had a problem with sleep. What was like the inflection point when you thought, you know, I need to change my life. And why did you start tracking those metrics and what did you track? I was 25 years old. I was just graduated from architecture, which is something that I was not willing to do um, because there was no jobs. The last crisis totally destroyed the industry up to 98% reduction in, in the industry. So it was very hard to find a job in Spain. I didn't want to go out, go abroad. So I had to figure something out. So it was just that I had to rebuild my focus capabilities, rebuild my sleep, and also find a job in a different industry and do so quick because I had debt to pay. And that's how it all started, by needing to adjust myself to the reality. Not everybody sees that. Some people just, you know, keep going and they become, you know, I guess, victim of victimhood and just slide into getting money from the government and stuff like that. Not you. What metrics did you decide to track? We now track a lot of them. But back then, it was just a simple habit tracker. What time did I wake up? What time did I go to bed? How much did I sleep? Did I do this? Did I do that? And then over time, I started incorporating startup methodology into personal and professional performance, right? And, and agile methodologies. And now we track a whole bunch of stuff. So you started with a couple of metrics. Then you probably, I guess you did something like a baseline. I'm not going to change anything right now. I'm just going to track maybe my habits for a couple of weeks, see where I'm at. And then you set KPIs for yourself. I need to go to bed earlier. I need to do this. I need to do that. How did I go? Yeah, that's basically it. And then I charted a hypothesis. Something that we are very big on is that, so the problem with the personal development industry, and this is something that I've come to realize uh, because I was doing the exact opposite. And what we do actually works. We had 100% results rates. And that's that's basically because we use data and we use actual science. So what I've come to realize that most on self-development, at least the typical self-development, and I'm, I'm putting peak performance within the self-development niche, although to me they're separate stuff, right? But some people might think it is, is similar. Without data and without actual science behind it, it's just intellectual masturbation. It's useless. Right. And that's something people they don't like to hear, but it's true. Like cold showers don't work. I mean, they had an effect, but that effect without an ulterior cause and without knowing what you're trying to do, how you're stimulating your nervous system, doesn't it's not going to turn you into Superman. Right. So there's too many things doing with too little intention and no sense of whether they work or not. So they obviously don't work. Right. Which is why we are big believers. And when I say we, it's my, my research team, not only myself, on something that's called complexity science. Complexity sciences, uh, they call it the science of the 21st century. And in essence, instead of looking at the phenomenon, so the typical scientific framework reductionism is fixated on the individual elements. So Let's say that we have X phenomenon and you try to break down that phenomenon into the smallest particles that you can think of and you study the particles one by one and you believe that if you understand the particles, you'll understand the phenomenon. But that's actually not true. I mean, there's a lot of information that is missing, most notably that the relationship between those elements carries a lot of information that if you don't study it, you miss out on the big picture. Reductionism say that the whole is just the sum of the parts. Allism is the whole is more than the sum of the parts. So 
I say this because the way we approach peak performance and really how self-development should be approached is from that holistic perspective, that complex science perspective. And you need to be able to make hypotheses and create experiments that you self-validate. Experiments can be as stupid as, I'm going to try for a week to go to bed at the same time, and I'm going to refrain from having alcohol. And then noting how does that affect your fitness, your focus, your emotional management, right? And you can start triangulating the things that work for you. But there's so many raw data that if you don't put it in a system, you miss out on it, right? But still, you should see an effect, whether you you know note everything down or not. If you stop alcohol and get more sleep, that should improve your mental health. Well, but it depends. Some people are good metabolizers of alcohol and some are not. Some people have a genetic mutation that allow them to sleep only four hours a night and others don't. There are too many casuistics in the world. And this is a, another pet peeve of mine. Doing broad cell development or peak performance training doesn't work. You need to help folks to test their own hypothesis and understand their own cause-effect relationship, right? Of course, you, the, the, the shortest way is probably genetic testing, but that's not as developed as it could be. So by using observation and tracking down that data, you can have a very good approximation of who you are and how do you perform. Yeah, I've also read a lot of like self-help books, for instance, in the 4-Hour Body of Tim Ferriss, and I just take tidbits out of that. For instance, I take a cold shower like between two and four times every week. You know, I eat chili peppers with my food, so it increases my metabolism, stuff like that. But I guess that's not the good way to go about it. I mean, that's not enough. It's better than doing nothing. But again, depending on the goal. So the first thing we do when we work with people is, dude, what's the goal? Aristotle used to say that we are theological beings. We need goals to make sense of our reality. Without a proper goal, I mean, nothing works. You need to know what you're trying to achieve. And also... You need to set the proper goals because people normally don't set the proper goals. So what's the goal? If the goal is just to test yourself and that's it, it was probably that enough. But if you're, what you're trying is to, for instance, in this case, right? Let's say that we're taking the example of the cold showers. If what you're trying to test is how well does your heart rate variability affect your focus, one of the exercises you can do to modify that heart rate variability is precisely cold showers. So if you track your heart rate variability after having taken those cold shower and you correlate that with your level of focus, you probably find that this is helping you focus a little bit. For instance, what's the goal? Focus. In our system, the goal is always focus and leverage because that's what really moves the needle for entrepreneurs. But that, that's an example of how to think about this. How does a one-man show come up with all these things? And how do you check them with like reality and, and, and science? And Well, I'm not a one-man show. I started as a one-man show, obviously, when I started this company, but now I've hired, we're five people now. And the first hire I did is uh, research. There's a guy that is full-time on the research front. And um, obviously, everything that I've created, it's true that we have a lot. When I started the company, I had a lot, like dozens of nodes and 5.5 years of track record, right? Doing this with myself and others. And it's just about reading, reading, reading. You start with books, then with papers. But then as soon as the first version of the, the evolution program, which is what we sell, right? It's a platform. The first version was ready. Then the first hire I did was not marketing or sales, although I probably should have done that because we would have grown much faster. It was research. Somebody that is, he has a lot of experience. His name is Mark. A lot of experience in dealing, he, I'm dealing with 
Nobel Prizes with a behavior economics lab that he had in the UK. And they did something similar to what we do, but more on the super academic front. And he is in charge of cross-checking, complementing. And we've found that a lot of mainstream advice is just not true because it's not replicable. There's a huge replicability size um, crisis on the behavioral science and people doesn't seem to acknowledge that. And we are super up to date, right? Because that's our job. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I want to like double my productivity. How would I go about that? We have a whole process. So the process is we don't believe in productivity, though. That's something we say. Productivity is for nerds. We do performance. Productivity is a one-sided approach to a complex system. The way you work is not depending on the way you manage your tasks. It's on the way you perform at a whole. You cannot ask somebody to be productive if he's going through a divorce. Seems intuitive, but that's how it is. So what we do is we think about performance. And productivity is a byproduct of increasing your performance. And how you go about that? Well, first step is direction. You need to understand what it is that you're trying to achieve in the next 10 years and one year and 90 days, and then one week. And we need to leverage a concept that is called vertical coherence. So you, make, you need to make sure that everything you do is aligned to the self-image that you are trying to build. Right. That here's what a lot of people self-sabotage and jeopardizes the chances to actually have peak performance. The first step is direction, is having absolute clarity on who you are and not who you are, what you are trying to achieve. Who you are is something we take care of later. Then is about once you know what you're trying to do, you need to do what we call performance optimization. And what we do is we look at a concept that we have coined as the system of you. Each of us has a system. We are a system, a complex system, and we need to look for the leverage, levers, bottlenecks, and trade-offs in that system of you. So things that we're very good at, things that we're bad at, things that we're good at that are jeopardizing our efforts of being good in other things, right? And the goal here is to remove the bottlenecks and increase the levers. And only by doing that, you already increase your productivity and your performance. Then... Step number three is about mental, is how you, we call this asymmetric warfare. So once you know exactly what you're trying to achieve, where are you going? And what's the snapshot of you? What's the snapshot of the system of you? Then is let's set a next week that makes sense, right? A next week that is aligned with the quarter, that is aligned with the year, that is aligned with the 10 years. Then we teach how to do this, how to leverage neuroscience to make sure you don't spend your days distracted, that your emotions don't jeopardize your willingness to do good work, that you're able to access flow. That's how you actually improve. And only with these two, three first weeks or modules, people see results. But then is when all the identity self-image kicks in, right? Because at some point you can, you can never attain what you are not even able to imagine. Your self-image in a way shapes your destiny, right? So we need to actualize that self-image. But instead of going the law of attraction BS route, what we do is, okay, so what's the actual validated scientific consensus regarding self-image? Um, and we put a lot of philosophy of science here. We use symbolic systems to help the individual transcend his own limitations because we all have self-esteem limitation, no matter the level we find ourselves at. We're all flawed in a way, but just people flaw at billionaire status, having a lot of impact in the world, and there's people flawed at zero level. And then we have emotions, right? So once you actualize, you're operating at a, new, at a whole new level, you're actualize your identity. You might, that's something you do every day, actualizing your identity. You start getting new problems and new problems breed new emotions. There's things that you are afraid of that you weren't afraid before because you didn't have access to them before. 
there's things that fire you up that you didn't have the chance to do before. So the second to last step is emotions. So what are the emotions? We ha- we provide frameworks and protocols. And then the physiology is, in my ways, the, mo- in the most important, but people normally have this better dial in, is how to prime mind and body so that you are operating in a state of ruleless effectiveness. And we basically tackle nutrition, sleep, meditation, breath work, and movement, not necessarily fitness. And because this is like a lot of stuff, we end up giving them analogic algorithms. So how to perform on autopilot. So how to nudge yourself so that you are ruthlessly effective and you don't need to think about this every single day. Like, dude, I want to be excellent to do. What do I do? Well, check your algorithms, your physical, your emotional, your narrative, your mental algorithms. And that's how we do it. So again, if you want to double your productivity, that probably means that you're already quite good because the median multiplication we do is 500%. Really depends on the baseline and on the degree of leverage, of course. So you start with levers and obstacles. Run us through what levers we have and how we can spot obstacles and take them away. Well, first thing is direction, though. First thing is, you want to call it goal setting. I was telling before, so Aristotle said that we need goals with teleological beings and we need to make sure that we're actually in the right path. Nothing carries more frustration than climbing the wrong lava, right? So we need to make sure before we even start that we're actually on the right path. And saying, I want to like double my performance, that's not a good goal yet? No, because there's no why behind it. Okay, I want to double your performance. Why? So what's a goal? Because we, again, without a goal, it doesn't work. It's like, I want to make money. Okay, for what? Yeah, okay. But I'm still stuck in productivity. In my mind, if I can get more done in a day, in a week, whatever... I can help my business grow faster. That's how I look at it. Okay, for what? For what? Well, we can hire more people. I can get a bigger salary in the end. We can have a bigger exit. We can, I don't know. For what? For what? (laughs) Keep doing that. Well, I want to live in a nicer house. That's probably my main goal for the coming five years. I want to buy a nicer house. Can I say for what again? So what I'm trying to get to is that we are some symbolic creatures, right? So we need motivation outside of the material stuff. Because if things are purely material in a way that more money, selling at a higher, having a a bigger car or a bigger house, whatever, that's motivation that doesn't come from within. And that it is bound to fade. If you read any billionaire, millionaire, whoever you look up to, nobody will ever tell you that the motivation, the intrinsic motivation that gets them at that level is precisely more money, more time. This relates to the level of consciousness each person is operating into. But long story short, the goal here ends up being service. So you need to think about your professional activity in a way that it serves others. And that service can be super big scale. Let's say Elon Musk trying to bring humanity to the moon and make humankind a multiplanetary species. Or it can be just servicing your family. I mean, there's no right or wrong here, but you need to have that element of service and you need to strongly believe that you are in the right vehicle. If you are in the right vehicle and you have a clear goal, 10 years, five years, doesn't matter, then it is much easier to prioritize effectively because the big lie about prioritization is that all tasks or all projects need to be looked from the same lens. And that's not true. When you use this lens, when you try to understand that service is the ultimate human strife, you start to see that most things are irrelevant. Most things. And that naturally puts you in a position 
that you're much better off doing the things that intimately matter to you. Which again, the result of that reflection can be the same. I want to scale my company. I want to buy a new house. True. But then you're looking at the problem from a different perspective. And there's a lot of things that you are going to do in your business that you didn't do before. I want to back up a little bit. Let's elaborate a little bit more on the concept of service. Tell me a little bit about that. How you look at that. Service is making sure that there's meaning behind your actions. There's something that transcend your own self in everything that you do. And if you look at all the patterns, I mean, this obviously has some sort of spiritual connotation, but we don't, we don't need to really get into spirituality or religion to drive the point home. The idea is that we humans experience intrinsic motivation when we are seeing that the effects of our actions resound or have an effect on people outside of ourselves. That's human nature. So by being of service, whatever that service is, so you can go to Kenya to hug trees. Well, that's not service, but you, you get my point, right? So you can take your company to IPO and you're, dude, you're serving your customers, you're serving a market and you're serving the, all the families of the people that are working for you, right? That's also service. But it's not that selfish willingness to make a lot of money. So service, it doesn't really matter what person do you research, it's always the same. That's where intrinsic motivation lies. And that's what really needs to drive our actions. And that's, again, that, that's like the, the, the cornerstone from which everything else comes down off. Then let's go back to goal setting again. Huh? Because I have, like, I have a personal goal and I have business goals. Business goals, yes. Serve customers, help them make more money, help them grow their audience, stuff like that. And then my personal goals are, you know, one of my bigger goals is to be able to build my own house. You know, literally, I wouldn't say I would be laying the bricks, but I would like to do the project management of it. Literally be like the person that directs the building. How would you now form a good goal for me? Well, you need to put a time scale to each goal. So we're not like shooting in the dark here. The longer the time frame of the goal, the more goal-oriented and the less systems-oriented. So the way we transition between long-term goals and short-term goals is by harnessing the power of systems. If you're trying, for instance, to double the business, there's a series of systems that you can put forth and make sure that you execute on them on a very short time scale. And that, that's where the concept of leverage kicks in that help you attain that goal in, say, 90 days right? That's one example. But if what you are trying to do is to build a house of your dreams and you probably have a 15-year time frame for that, that is only going to happen if you have A, the time, B, the money to buy, C, the land, and, and then to do the project management. Well, then that goal, that system, it's at this state of time, like today, June the 2nd, it's just easier. It's just set aside a little bit of money, and work towards achieving the type of freedom that we allow you to get that house of your dreams. But we don't need to pay that much attention to the systems right now because it is too much away in time. But if you want to make sure that High Fury is at 40K MRR in 90 days, well, then, then you need to be absolutely precise in how you audit everything that you are trying to do. What is the degree of leverage that each task or each project that you have undertaken to get it to 20K, for instance? I'm putting high for example, but it can be anything, right? It's the same for some masters, the same for any business. So what's the actual leverage of the task? What's the actual effort and focus that's being put? What's the different levers that you can press? So it can be labor. So how many people is working on that system? It can be data. So what are the, I don't know, you're doing data slash 
how you package that data. So in these cases, you're doing podcasting, you're doing whatever. You see how, how much money are you putting into paid ads? That's another leverage. Capital money is, is another degree of leverage on the business side. And that's how you set up an hypothesis and you are ruthless on the systematization of each step that leads to that goal. And you'll eventually get there or you won't get there. But if you've been thorough in how you create that goal, then it's much easier to audit what went right, what went wrong, and then set a new hypothesis based on the information. The goal here is to raise our self-awareness and make sure that we are trying to achieve something that we are clear about, if that makes sense. Most people just shoot in the dark. You cannot shoot in the dark. What are some of the main obstacles you see with entrepreneurs? Impatience. So... No, well, no, let, let me rephrase that. Impatience is one of them, but it's not the worst one. Um, the worst one is self-management. So they, their inability to identify high leverage tasks and act on those high leverage tasks with maximum intensity or mental capacity, which is focus. We always say that if they only learn anything from our platform, which again, there's a lot of content and a lot of like concept and it's, it's like very, very deep. But when I say, if you only really master two things is Look at everything you do through two lenses. One is your degree of leverage for the task, and then it's the degree of focus. Because the degree of leverage for the task is going to create additional opportunities. And the degree of focus is going to illuminate, for instance, how much you like the task, how skilled you are at the task, right? So the higher your skill level, the easier it is for you to get into f full focus or flow, for instance. If you dislike a task, then it's very hard to be focused. So the degree of focus really serves as a litmus test for you to understand, listen, I like this, I don't like this, I'm good at this, I'm not good at this, and then take necessary actions. So I need to hire somebody to do this, I don't like it. Or I just need to hire a coach or buy a book or do whatever I need to do to increase my skill level so I'm able to focus better, right? Leverage and focus are the two dimensions that we use to judge our daily work. Now you talked about, you know, your self-image shapes your destiny. I see that a little bit around me. That, you know, people have an identity and because they think about themselves in a certain way, it's hard for them to, you know, transcend that both, you know, on a personal level, but also on a business level. How do you get people to transcend their self-image? I mean, I could talk for five hours about this because it's probably one of my, my topics that I love the most. And it's probably the topic that I've read the most about. What we do is fairly ambitious because we condense in about five, six hours, yes, uh, all the relevant literature that has been published in the 20th century mostly, which is when psychology kicked in in full force. You know, psychology was, wasn't really a science until the end of 19th century. William James was the first guy in America to really systematize it. And then you have uh, Freud, you have Jung, which is, in my view, way more interesting. And then you start seeing, then you have Maslow. So there's now a string, like 130 years, 150 years of track record to look into. So the concept of self-image has a lot to do with how you see the world. That's philosophy, how you see yourself, how you manage yourself, which is psychology. The first thing we look at is, so what are the rules or things that you have accepted as true that just ain't so, right? The problem with the human's mind is that up to the end of seven, roughly seven, we absorb everything. So our consciousness is vibrating in very low, so we don't really have critical judgment. And once consciousness kicks in in full force, then that's, it plays, it builds itself with the elements that are present up to the age of seven. 
which means that there's a lot of stuff that may be wrong, things that you learn intuitively that are just wrong. And then you've built your own worldview based on stuff that is not proven, or maybe you're operating under rules that are just not yours, for instance. Um, and, and you can see this everywhere. Once you really internalize this mental model, it is so obvious. Like not long before, you couldn't have kids without being married. It's like, dude, most people has never been married in the history of humankind. That's a stupid rule, right? But there were some sort of societal rules. You cannot be an entrepreneur if you are a solo founder. And I'd say that, that that's, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. And, I, and I'm proving that, right? Because And I prove that because I'm very... Tattoo, like I really wanted to prove this point wrong. It's just harder, way harder, but anyway, it can be done. There's so many rules that you accept as valid that are either wrong or not applicable to yourself. So either way, they're wrong for you. So the first thing we need to do is open their eyes to things that may not be relevant for them, that truth that they have been living by that just don't make sense. That's step number one. Step number two is instead of looking outwards, it's looking inwards. So how, what are the, the, the same type of rules or principles that you have been believing from the outside world? What are the rules that you have believed from the inside about yourself, about your self-image that are just not true? Again, this happens at all points, right? For a long time, I thought I was very bad at marketing, but I don't think I'm very bad now. Like if you look at the data, I'm just learning. It's just a matter of time. Right. But I know that I could have grown much better if I had been uh, more ambitious in my marketing effort. I was my own stopper at that time. This can be applied to anything, to any self-image. And then we provide a lot of exercises and a new frameworks that people learn to leverage what Jung called the shadow. The shadow is the worst, time, the, be- the worst and the best side of ourselves, because if you're able to leverage that shadow, it's much easier to become a ruthless competitor, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. Right. There's a lot of different examples of this. Do you want to share like a quick MMA example that I, I researched not long ago? So um, not long ago, I think it was in January, you had McGregor who had a rematch with uh, Dustin Poirier. And this guy, when McGregor was about to become the start he eventually became, the first match uh, that had a little bit of significance was with against this guy, with uh, Dustin Poirier. And Poirier at that time was about to be a champion, but then this guy, uh, McGregor, just destroyed him because of all that trash talking. All the media was against Poirier because they wanted McGregor to be a new champion. He was a lot of fun on the ring. And Dustin was massacred on the second round, I believe, right? So McGregor did a good job at reducing him. What happened in the next five years? Well, Poirier never really recovered from that. He grew a shadow. He had been so angry about the fact that he felt that MMA wanted McGregor to win and how he had let McGregor win that for five years, he wasn't able to summon that competitive spirit until he rematched McGregor and he prepared himself as hell. So when he had a clear goal, my view is that he rebuilt himself because he was able to harness that shadow, that resentment against the establishment and against McGregor to really put a very good fight against McGregor. And McGregor followed, uh, in my opinion, a different parkour, a different, a different way. Because McGregor, once he got to the fame, he just let himself go. In my opinion, he's loved that competitive spirit. And the, the richer he has got, the more success he has got, the less competitive he has become. 
because now the shadow that has gone from that, the, the, the envy of trying to have more every single day, trying to prove himself right when he's losing, he's not able to summon that to get back to that competitive level that he was. And then when they both rematched, McGregor said before the match that he was miles ahead Poirier. What happened? Poirier won. Right? So that's a successful example of people harnessing for the bad or for the good, the power of their own shadow. And that's super important because if you know what are the internal levers, well, bottlenecks, you can turn into levers, right? With just as Dustin Poirier did. Again, this is a continuous improvement process. Whoever tells you that he can fix you in 90 days, he's lying. He can provide you the tools so that you fix yourself. It's like the, the typical old tale of, do you want to fish or you want to learn to fish? The same stuff. We teach people how to fish. Then we go deep into a state of consciousness. And this is a little bit related to the service. State of consciousness is, this is a very interesting skill that David Hawkins was a psychologist. He passed away, sadly, about a decade ago. About He mapped out all the emotions of the human experience and he had a logarithmic scale. And he basically proved that the more you are of service to the others, the more you elevate your consciousness, the easier it is for you to detach yourself from negative emotions. And this has also been proven, or at least theorized, by uh, Keegan, which is a Harvard psychologist that talks about the states of human development, of adult human development. And it's all about how you understand the object-subject economy. So let me explain. It's about how you understand who you are and what you do. So depending on if you feel you are, for instance, what others think of you, and you don't have your own sense of individuality, then you're operating a very low scale of consciousness. You need to change that. This is fairly complex, but the goal is eventually to become what Bruce Lee talked about. When he said, be water, my friend, he was referring to the level of consciousness. When you're water, you don't even have an identity. Depending on the context, you are able to summon one side or the other side of you, which is also what Watts said in his film format, I harbor multitudes. Anybody that has grown to a level of mastery understands that there's no fixed self. Self is a movable entity. And our goal is to harness our best self on all fronts at all times to make sure that we perform at our best. We teach them to identify what are the low-level analogic stuff and bring that to the upper level. And then finally, like the last step is, okay, so you know there's a lot of bullshit things that you've been following in society. You know they're not working for you. Get rid of that. Then you know there's a lot of bullshit that you're telling yourself that is just not true, it's not helping you. Get rid of that. You know you now have a new model for which to understand your own consciousness. How can you develop yourself into water and make sure that no matter what life throws at you, you're able to be at your best at all times because you're unattached on the outcomes, you're fully present. We have a lot of a whole system about that. What's the last thing? Well, the last thing is to leverage the ultimate human structure, which is the hero myth. The hero myth is present on all religions, it's basically the core fabric of human stories. And it's about a hero that lives placidly, then there's some sort of challenge. He goes out in order to fight some demon. He's about to get killed and he needs to choose whether he goes all in or not. He decides to go all in. He defeats that monster. And then when he goes back, he's, it's a different person. There's a double story. So the things that he does on the outside and then how does change him inside. And what we say is, okay, dude, now that you are not following any bullshit principle, that you are operating or trying to operate at a different level of consciousness, the only thing that is missing is that you crap your own monomyth. 
You understand what it is that you've been doing until now and then what is exactly what you're trying to achieve in the future. That 10-year goal needs to be fully internalized in a personal mythology that you need to develop. And then we give them the tools to solidify that myth. By feeding the myth and starving the doubt, they are accelerating their own evolution. In fact, the program is called Evolution because we say that, dude, evolution is something that happens whether you like it or not. The best way to make sure that you don't get wiped out is by self-directing your own evolution. And that's what we help them do. So that's the full model of what we do on that module. And that's honestly, that's the thing that I like the most. Wow, this was a masterclass. I, I should be paying you. Yeah, dude, I'm happy to share. This is Now you understand why I stopped investing other people's money and starting building Submaster, right? Yeah, that's really nice. This really labor of love, that's what my clients called it. I really loved it. And the most important thing is that, dude, there's a lot of results. Flabbergasted. Hey, uh, Leon, where can people find you? Just put Self-Master on Google and you'll find our platform, our website. I'm Leon Castillo. Um, so on Twitter, it's Leon Castillo, at Leon Castillo VC. Uh, on Facebook, Leon Castillo. Fan, uh, I don't know, just Self-Master is, is the name we use for everything. And I'm mostly, I'm 100% devoted to that. And I'm present on all social media platforms except for Instagram. Leon Castillo, thank you very much. This was really great. My friend, Yannick, happy to be with you. Good luck with everything. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.